You're listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. Digital Noise. We return with a, a special guest from the past of Digital Noise, Mako. Yes, just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. I just gave you those big, like, puppy dog eyes. Oh, it's like, you know, oh, I need someone else. I am the shitty ghost of Christmas past, <laughs> here to review some older and some fresher movies as well. We've got a good mix of old and new in here. We do. There's some really interesting things to talk about this week, but before we get started... I just want to say uh, Circle Brewing Company is our sponsor, who uh, we're very thankful for. God knows I'm drinking their Circle Blur right now, as per usual. But they are Austin Brewing Company, located at 2340 West Breaker Lane, Suite B, where they have a great tap room with lots of cool stuff you can try out. Uh, highly recommend them. They You can also get their beers, uh, of which they have many, at your local convenience store or uh, a place that carries more specializes in craft brew. I know they do uh, – I believe they do actually distribute outside of Texas, but I couldn't be exactly accurate as to where. But they are getting more and more popular and for good reason. I have yet to have a beer by them I did not care for. It's like a holiday party in your mouth. You will <laughs> not regret it. But yeah, aside from the Circle Blur, they've got their Envy Amber, uh, the Lady Bird American IPA, the Alibi Blonde, the Archetype Historical IPA, the Doppel Blur, the Milady English IPA, the Fanny Pack Kolsch, the Tuxedo T-Shirt Black IPA, the Party Pig Imperial Porter, or if you're uh, in their tap room, they have a barrel-aged whiskey pig BBA Imperial Porter, mm. which is quite... I like whiskey and pigs. Yes, I know that you do. You're mm. always talking about how much you like whiskey pigs. Uh, especially when you get that pig whiskeyed up. Mm-mm-mm. Nothing, oh, wait, I may have said too much. Nothing like a drunk pig to get the party <laughs> <That's> right. started. <laughs> Ate a party till the pig gets drunk. Also, big thanks to our subscribers out there. You know who you are. Uh, we can't do this website literally without you. I mean, literally. There's so many things right now, thanks to lots of changes in the structure of the internet and security <laughs> certificates and things like that that are costing me uh, more and more money. And there's a lot of big expenditures coming up that I don't know how we're going to handle. And we need your help to make sure the site keeps running. Please think about cons- uh, contributing at t- uh, $2, $5, $10, or $25 a month. And with that, you also get lots of bonus stuff in our forums and bonus shows like our party podcast, The Gathering, the movie and TV news and trailer reviews show, uh, The Breakfast Pub, and uh, w- watch a movie with us or we do commentaries of movies, uh, and lots more. So please think about becoming a subscriber. It would really help us out. And if you like th- this site, it'll help you out because it'll make sure you're going to be able to continue to listen to it because, quite frankly, Frankly, some months are a lot tighter than others, and this one being December, it's pretty fucking tight. By the way, I just want to say I veto the idea of standing on a street corner with signs that say, we'll watch movies for food. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to help you. You're on your own on that one. Oh, man. You come know, on. So hopefully we'll get some new subscribers so you don't have to go to that 
but worst I, option. But I made you a sign and everything. I know, and, and your penmanship is lovely. <laughs> Why, thank you. Well, our first movie we're going to talk about this week is the Blu-ray re-release. Uh, re- I, I, I don't know, maybe the first release on Blu-ray. I'm not sure. I don't think it is. I think some but, of these features were ported over from a previous DVD release, but this, I believe, has been recently uh, mastered in 4K. And this is Maniac, and I'm going to talk about the remake, which also is quite good with Elijah Wood. Really, really excellent reinterpretation of this classic slasher film from 1980 by William Lustig, uh, starring Joe Spinell as Frank Zito, who is a serial killer living in New York City in a small apartment where he murders and scalps young ladies he finds, and and, and weirdly, for a serial killer movie, uses a gun for a lot of his killings, which is very un- like not normal for these things. Yeah, he, you know, he doesn't seem to have uh, that kind of pathology where the murder weapon is what you know has the appeal for him. It's just whatever works. Yeah, you uh, know, but, you know, he's a typical New Yorker. He'll just do with what he makes do with what he has. It's one of the things that makes us stand stand out that that keep people remembering fondly. First off, it's actually shot quite well. Yeah. Uh, second. The killer is not like your normal killer in these mm. things. He is this guy who is who does not want to be a killer, who's fighting this thing inside of himself, who constantly has these scenes where he's, you know, going, why do you keep doing this? Why do you keep doing this? He's He's got a lot of very odd... Almost uh, transvestite-ish, like near yeah. transvestite-ish type things. They really get into the whole his methodology uh, and his his madness in great detail here in a way that that, that was very unfamiliar for slasher films yeah. at this time. I mean, it's certainly any type of movie like this, especially at this time when the the genre is still fairly young. Uh, the obvious thing that to reference to is Hitchcock's Psycho. You have a a guy with some serious mommy issues who's talking to himself and is into some kinky shit. Uh, but what really makes this kind of stand apart, where uh, you know Norman Bates in the movie is kind of this young milk toasty kind of nice guy who obviously has a problem. Joe Spinell, who's this great character actor that you've seen in lots and lots of movies. Uh, this was like his only starring role and pretty late towards the end of his life. I, I know him best as uh, Chicho from uh, The Godfather, but he's been in tons of other movies with like Friedkin and, you know, I mean, he was almost in Jaws. I mean, he's been in tons of movies. He's one of those, that guy who has, you has that face and you go, Oh, it's that guy. And he finally got to star in a movie. He produced it. He had a story credit and a script credit. I mean, this guy is all over the movie. I mean, it is William Lustig's film. Uh, but William Lustig pretty much said, you know, Joe handled the character and I handled all the set pieces, huh. which is makes this feel like a kind of Argento-esque Jalo done on a really low budget and really, really sleazy. Well, it's odd because the first, like, half of this, even to two-thirds, feels like um, like... Almost like Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer yeah. type stuff. But then the last third gets really giallo-ish with hallucinations yeah. and crazy stuff going on. There's a scene in the end that I was like, holy shit, Alejandro Jodorowsky totally ripped this off for Sana Sangre. I had no fucking yeah. idea. <laughs> I mean, yeah, there, there's Argento in here. There's moments that with the sort of scenes of like scuzzy late 70s New York that feel like something out of an Abel Ferrara film. I mean, this could be like Driller Killer if it was directed with like, you know, with an Argento-esque eye for set pieces. I mean, there's a scene in a in a bathroom, in a, in a public restroom that's quite intense. And, you know, and also we should mention, uh, even though I don't think he's particularly fond of this movie, uh, 
great gore by the master Tom Savini. Who also has has a small role in here where he gets it worse than almost anyone. Oh, oh yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, you probably, it's Tom Savini. He probably goes, oh, that has to happen? Yeah, that's the role I'm going to play. Yeah. There's like this shotgun blowing his head up off through a window where it is like one of the most brutal like, <laughs> yeah. like, like head explosions you have ever seen. The gore really holds up on this, which is a credit to how good Tom Savini yeah. was at his craft. I mean, he was a game changer in the craft of horror yeah. movie special effects, no question. And he shows it off strongly here in this movie that I, I would argue still really holds up after all this time. And this is a Blue Underground re-release of this. We just talked in the previous show with Aaron about their re-release of Zombie, which was a gorgeous 4K upgraded slipcover, lenticular oh, yeah. slipcover with like tons of bonus features. And this is same also here. another one where they're doing that same treatment, too, where it's just a gorgeous looking set here with yeah. a collection of uh, vintage trailers for the, for the movie, a collection of vintage American TV spots for it. There's four radio spots. There are two commentaries. Uh, both are vintage ones, uh, uh, and both have uh, Bill Lustig on them. The first one is with uh, where he's joined by the producer, Andrew W. Garoni. And the second one, he's joined by Tom Savini, uh, the editor, Lorenzo Mar- Mar- Martinelli, and Joe Spinell's assistant, Luke Walter. Now, that's not all. That's just on the disc itself with the movie. There's a whole second disc here that comes with a brand new featurette with Lustig introducing raw footage never seen before of outtakes from the film with him discussing quite a bit about where they were, what was happening, what the deal with them. There's returning to the scene of the crime, a new featurette where Lustig returns to all the locations where he shot it. Uh, Anna and the Killer, uh, archival interview with uh, actress Carolyn Monroe, who remembers working on this. Uh, The Death Dealer, archival interview with Tom Savini, talking about the film. Dark Notes, where they talk to the composer, Jay Chataway. Maniac Men, uh, archival featurette with the songwriters, uh, talk about, about a controversy about the origin of the Maniac song from the movie Flashdance and <laughs> oh, as how it, that's connected to this film, which I had no idea was a thing, and is played for laughs. Joe Spinell story, which is an archival documentary about the life and legacy of actor, lead actor Joe Spinell. And Mr. Robbie, which is a, a Maniac 2 promo reel. I'm not sure. Did they ever actually make a Maniac 2? No, what was happening was, and by the way, that... We should also mention there's a third disc, a yep. CD of the soundtrack. That Janelle, that Joe Spinell documentary, it's about 40 minutes long. It really it's good. probably the most interesting special feature on the disc. Uh, he died, and uh, even the story of his death is kind of legendary amongst his friends. He's just one of those guys who was a legendary character. Everybody loved the guy, even though sometimes he drove them crazy. Uh, he was just an insane, bigger-than-life kind of presence. Uh, I mean, the footage on there of... Him with Steven Spielberg uh, hanging out in Spielberg's office the day that the award nominations for Jaws are announced. <laughs> I mean, Joe Spinell and Spielberg are not two guys you think would ever be in a room together. And go. yet there they are like buddies. It's he's just one of those guys who was kind of in the right place at the right time and would just take any kind of role. He finally got himself a, a starring role with Maniac, and it did well enough that they talked about doing a sequel. Unfortunately, by that time, his health had really deteriorated. He was really alcoholic. And uh, they did shoot some promo material that was kind of like a little proof of concept with a new director. Right. And unfortunately, he passed away. Again, the story itself of how he died is kind of incredible. But... 
Unfortunately, Maniac 2 never happened. Otherwise, if he had lived, he probably would have done it. Well, that's not even close to all with all the bonus features, believe it or not. There's a publicity section with, like, radio interviews, more vintage stuff with Lustig talking about it, Joe Spinell talking about it, Joe Spinell on the Joe Franklin show, uh, a barf bag review policy, which is <laughs> the, just – it's a promotional thing for the film, but then basically saying this movie is going to freak you out. Uh, uh, Grindhouse Film uh, Festival Q&A with Lustig and Sharon Mitchell talking about the film. Uh, there's a still gallery. There's a whole section of vintage TV reports about the controversy of this film when it came out from various different cities. I mean, this was a big deal. Yeah. Like, when it came out, people were upset about this movie. It, it was one of those films that instantly shot up to the, the video nasty list. I mean, it was frequently banned or criticized oh, yeah. or, you know... Uh, and, of course, with a film like that, that obviously gets people's attention. And apparently... You know, within like a month, they'd already made their money back. This was a very successful low budget film. But unfortunately, Joe Spinell didn't live long enough to really uh, reap the benefits of that. And there's a booklet that comes with this. Oh, yeah. This illustrated booklet, a collection of quotes from outraged critics about the film. This (laughs) is just a full on quality, like, uh, release. These guys, Blue Underground, who've always been great at picking films and great at their upgrades, are now really stepping up their game to try and compete with some of the other people. Well, I mean, they're looking at like Arrow, Arrow and yeah, stuff, all those you know. guys. I mean, these boutique re-release houses. I mean, they're doing they're doing God's work because there's a lot of these films that would have just languished on bare bones DVDs if you're even lucky to find them. Some of that stuff never even got on DVD. It was just stuck on old crappy VHS tapes. Uh, yet. Here we are in this new age, and we are getting to see these films better than they have in decades. Well, moving forward to 2018, we release for a film that somehow got a theatrical release. I can only guess because, like, actress Bella Thorne really wants to be the biggest thing in the world. All I can think is she has a terrible agent, and also, apparently, it seems like in real life she's not the nicest person in the world either. Uh, But I don't know. Maybe those are those are things I'm hearing that's not true. Far be it for me to judge from a distance. But her this new movie she is the leading role in. I still see you. Like, no press screening for this one, that's for sure. Yeah. From relatively experienced director Scott Spear, uh, who has was known largely for tons of music videos that he did, but also did uh, Step Up Revolution and Step Up All In, which, of course, made quite a bit of money and has worked on a couple TV shows. But uh, this one is based on a novel, Break My Heart 1,000 Times. This is a fucking weird yeah. movie that doesn't ultimately make very much sense at all. I mean, it's well shot. I'll give it that. It oh, has yeah. this no. icy blueness to it that's really helps like I mean, it's all it's a winter film. It's like the idea is uh, the big thing happens before the movie even starts where there was an explosion in this lab in Chicago that kills tons and tons of people with the shockwave from it. But apparently what it did was everyone who got killed by it, they kind of they keep reappearing years later like stuck in like when you think of ghosts when you see them in a moment of history you know those type of ghosts you read about where it's like oh they don't they're not like actively doing anything they're just reliving a but we're seeing a moment from the past where they were in it's like everyone is so used to this now that they literally just drive their cars through them they actually (laughs) have classes about it it is a mandatory class in high school about what they call remnants and apparently even though there's some kind of scientific gobbledygook regurgitated to explain, oh, you know, these sort of cataclysmic events sort of rip little holes in space and time. And, you know, we are actually seeing, you know, just remnants there. They're not sentient. They can't hurt you. They can't interact with you. They don't even know you're there. 
It's just this little, like, it's described almost like a hologram. It's just this little echo of the past. And of course, as we, because this is based on a YA novel, we find out that actually there's a conspiracy and the government has not been telling us the truth about these remnants and what they want. And this centers around uh, uh, Bella's role as Veronica Calder. It's 10 years later. She's a high school student. Yeah, sure she is. Yeah, right. <laughs> she's like, there is no way Bella Thorne is a high school student, despite the fact she keeps playing them in movies. I just saw the considerably better film, Assassination Nation, where she also plays um, a high school student that just came out this year. See that one, not this one. Anyway, continuing on, she has, her dad is one of the people who's taken from her, and one of the difficult things is every morning, his remnant is sitting at the breakfast table right. reading the newspaper, and she's like, Jesus Christ, there's got to be a way for this not to happen. She has kind of a friendship with her teacher at school, played by Dermot Mulroney, who's always nice to see in yeah. anything. Great, like, underappreciated character actor. Uh, and everything changes for her where she goes, wait, something different is happening when a new remnant appears in her home of a guy in the bathroom, like the hottest ghost you've ever seen. That's right. <laughs> who's Short like, of Patrick Swayze. Yeah. Who's like, who's like in his, his uh, tidy whities uh, in the mirror and writes in the mirror the word run. And she's like, what the fuck is going on? It feels like he's re- like has is aware of her. So she starts trying to find out what's going on. Uh, it leads to a bunch of like adventures with her and uh, the, the weird loner guy in school <laughs> who's obsessed with remnants yeah. and studying them. And they go off to find out stuff and it leads into a really overcomplicated series of things yeah. and like a triple twist plot end and stuff that like, quite frankly, there's a point you're like, at the, by the end I was like, those, that whole last 20 minutes didn't even make any sense given what yeah. you told us I before. mean, again, it's all shot very well. Well, the actors do the best they can with the material. I think Dermot Maroney, Maroney uh, himself is uh, doing a fine job as this sort of snarky confidant and mentor, even though he often comes across as a poor man's Robert Downey Jr. Uh, <laughs> the, the problem with this movie is that it takes this insane premise and it commits to it. The problem is it's constantly explaining the rules of how this works and yet frequently violates those rules. Oh, yeah. Or has enormous gaps in logic. It just over-explains everything and then forgets that it explains something and does something that is contrary to that explanation. Yeah. Like, I don't... Like, why are there remnants from other times? They're not just the remnants. Yeah. It's not the remnants going about their lives at the moment of their death. Sometimes they're doing something they did years ago. And what does all this mean if, indeed, some remnants are capable of being aware of what's going on then and others aren't? What does any of that mean? It's like, oh, we'll save it for the sequel. Yeah. There ain't going to be a Apparently, sequel. Apparently, you know, remnants have some connection to people if they're born on the same day be- or the- have the same birthday because oh. that's... To- you know, at some point, there's so much scientific hand-waving away. You know, I, I almost expected Doctor Who to pop up and go, no time to explain. There's just some timey-wimey, ghosty-toasty stuff. We just got to go. Get in the police box. We got to go. Uh, and I'm like, wait a minute. What the fuck just happened? And part of this movie's problem is, uh, yes, it is based on a YA novel, uh, Break My Heart in a Thousand Times, which is a much better title than I Still See You, which sounds like some really horrible knockoff of I Know What I, You Did Last Summer. <laughs> I Still See What You Did Last Summer. Uh, it tries to be a supernatural 
uh, sci-fi ghost story and then becomes a murder mystery and a serial killer chase. And it's just trying to do too many things and twisting itself into knots to try to make it all somehow make sense that it ultimately fails. There's an audio commentary with the director and Bella Thorne. Uh, there is a 26-minute Remnants manifesting I Still See You, which is an EPK with interviews behind the scenes mm-hmm. footage and what have you. There's Break My Heart a Thousand Times, novel to screen for nine minutes, which is more interviews, including with the original writer. And then there's 28 minutes of deleted scenes, Jesus. which I could not bring myself to sit No, I'm all right. Maybe those are the 28 minutes where everything made sense. It's an optional commentary by Scott Spear. All right, let's move on to our next one, which is, once again, we're going back in time for another horror film from 1981, oh. a slasher film directed by Ed Hunt. That's got to be a pseudonym, right? Uh, called Bloody Birthday. Actually, it's funny because our last show, we just did one called Happy Birthday to Me, which is also from the uh, 80s, which is, by the way, significantly better than this one. Uh, uh, sure. But uh, this one ain't bad. Apparently, Ed Hunt is the guy's real name, okay. uh, according to one of the documentaries on here. Uh, it This is actually not bad bad it, it shows its age uh and again talk about science and shit that doesn't make sense apparently one night three children are all born in the same hospital on the same night the night of a solar eclipse or a lunar eclipse or whatever it doesn't really matter because it's there's no point in it it's the simplest just most hacky it's a way to just explain it yeah and then they become a, don't worry about it yeah it's like they were at some point somebody's doing some astrology and like well there's something weird with their chart it's like saturn blocked uh saturn was blocked and your emotions come from Saturn. basically these three little kids are sociopaths and apparently i would guess every other child in the world born that same night but we only focus on three in this small town and it's on their uh their on their 10th birthday and the night before people start dying in grisly ways and we realize oh it's the children doing it. And they even go around killing their own parents. Uh, the thing that makes this hokey shit work, uh, it's so clearly kind of a, kind of a, you know, Halloween babysitter kind of saving the day sort of thing with, you know, because her little brother is being picked on by these three psycho kids who look like, you know, butter wouldn't melt in their mouths. <laughs> they're, they're just sweetest little kids. And then you realize they're all murderous psychos. Even one of the little girls, like, the, has a hole in her uh, closet where the other two psycho kids can pay her quarters to go look at her very hot sister stripping. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of nudity in yeah. this film, for the record. Right. A lot. And, <laughs> and, you know, and, of course, you know, the thing that makes it work, as dopey as it is, yeah. the thing that makes it work is the three kids are actually pretty good. I mean, they're not giving, like, Oscar-level performances here. Don't get me wrong. But they're like... Yeah, those kids are really creepy. They seem really sadistic, and they're having a lot of fun uh, finding ways to kill people or make other people think that, you know, something else is going on. A lot of mischief happening uh, in this particular movie. And like most Arrow releases, it's got a fairly stacked set of special features on this. I mean... let me say before oh, we yeah. get to that. First off, uh, one of the leads in here is Suzanne Strasberg, very well-known, oh, yeah. famous actress. As well, there's a small role by Michael Dudikoff, '80s action movie star. Yeah. 
But the really the most pointed thing is uh, Billy Jane, actor most people don't know by name, but if you've watched any 80s movies with kids in them, you know who he mm. is, plays one of the evil kids. He was like the kid in Cujo. He was in Just oh, One okay. of the Guys. He was in uh, John Tucker Must Die more recently. Huh. He was on the show Parker Lewis Must Lose, uh, uh, Silver Spoons, 21 Jump Street. I mean, he was like one of those kids that was in so much shit and was so distinctive looking. He's the kid with the glasses. Yeah, he's the best part of the movie. Right off the bat, you're like, where do I know that kid from? Yeah. I've seen him in a hundred things. But yeah, you're right. There actually is. This is Severn is releasing this and they do a pretty decent job. I'm sorry, Arrow, Arrow. is releasing this and they do a pretty decent job with the extra features here with a eight minute interview with actress Lori Lethen. There's uh, a 20 minute Bad Seeds and Body Counts, which is actually a lot of fun with, a, with yeah. his, this guy who's sort of like a genre critic who's just talking about his appreciation of the Bad Seed genre. Yeah. Like kid killers. Uh, there's Starships and Killer Brains for 21 minutes, which, which is the producer talking about the director at Hunt. There's an interview with uh, the film's producer, Max Rosenberg. There's original trailers and two different commentaries. Um, I do want to say as well, it's funny though, like, I, the, the kid actors are good. Some of the adult actors are good. Some are fucking awful. Sure. Uh, it's just okay shot. But the whole thing, if it wasn't for the gore, which is, not excessive. No. It's here, but it's not. It's it's not played for gore. It wasn't for that. But the it wasn't for the excessive amount of nudity. I would have sworn this was a television movie. It does. It was clearly shot cheaply. It was clearly done. But the thing is, and that's the uh, that uh, uh, bad seeds and uh, whatever that documentary was. I'm blanking on the name of it. You just said it. Uh, one of the things that guy's talking about is like. He likes this movie precisely because it has that sort of TV-level quality. It seems very direct. It seems very made-for-TV, very simple. And yet, uh, you do have these creepy, weird kids who don't – who feel like they should not be in a made-for-TV movie. And there are some genuinely good moments of gore. And I, I think the last shot of this film, the last sequence, is actually pretty well staged. Uh it's just there's gaps in logic, of course. There's things that don't make sense. Jose Ferrer is there for some reason just to pick <laughs> up a paycheck. Uh, you know, this is a movie that shouldn't work, but it kind of does. And God bless Arrow for doing this shit because, frankly, these are the guys that I always think they can never scrape the bottom of the barrel anymore. And yet they every once in a while they dig up something that's not only decent – they put more love and care into re-releasing this film than it deserves, I would, frankly. I would argue Arrow finds a lot on a regular basis. Yeah. But the thing is, they they specialize in such niche things that nothing from Arrow is for everyone. Correct. You know, this is for people who like old slasher movies. Yeah. They make, like, a, they release Italian Palesi and, yeah. and Giallo obscure films. They release, like, a, a old westerns. Yeah. Uh, like, stuff like that. And I love them for doing it and giving as much love and care for these films that... You know, companies like Criterion or the original production houses are never going They're to They're never going to touch to, it. To, yeah, exactly. So that we, we should be grateful to Arrow. That's all I've said. They're doing God's work. Well, our next film is one I was not about to force uh, Marco to see because I sat through this fucking thing. And, um, okay, so it wasn't that bad, but it certainly wasn't really good either. It's a movie with the atrocious title of Christmas Blood. That's, I was <laughs> like, that's as good as you can get is Chris, Christmas Blood. This is from Artsploitation Films, which also put out a film on, on this that we're talking about in this show was oh, yeah. actually one of my favorites of the stack. I agree. Uh, but this particular one is a, uh, I believe it's Swedish, uh, no, Norway, Norway film 
that is a callback to the 1980s slasher cinema, like the films, two of the films we've talked about before, specifically taking heavily from uh, or borrowing very heavily from Halloween and from uh, um, uh, Black Christmas. Okay. Now, it takes a long time for anything to fucking happen in this movie that's worth watching. And also, for the record, I actually had to look into this for various different sites because it was bothering me so much. This was so fucking dark. Like, so shot so darkly. The whole first 15 minutes of this film, I couldn't see anything that was really? happening. I had to get in a... a adjust the settings on my TV to the point where everything was at its uh, ultimate bright brightest. So it's just, just like a shitty transfer happening. of a shitty movie? No. Apparently it was, a, they did the best job they could with what they had, oh, what God. they were given and it was like just a really, it was shot super dark. It was like, oh my God, that's ridiculous. But I did finally manage to brighten it enough to where I could make basic sense of it and it is indeed all subtitled as well because they're not speaking English, I tell you, at least not most of the time. It's a Santa Claus killer that uh, has escaped the local asylum. He's been responsible for a hundred deaths so far, but apparently is just getting started. There's a montage in the beginning of all these people he killed before in the search for him, and they finally got him. And uh, and then eventually he escapes. And their whole thing was they one of the things they found with him. He had his naughty and I was nice say, list. He had that. List. And there's still several people who have not been like caught or not been he he'd never got to and they're going down the list like well this person actually died of natural causes this person we have no idea where they are uh so there's this many people left and that's about as useful as the police ever are in this movie because the rest of it is in this small town where a group of hot chicks are staying in a cabin getting really drunk and having weird like angry cat fights with each other uh and Sanic shows up uh, along with some really the most doofy dudes ever to have a Tinder account. (laughs) Now, are all of these people on the naughty list? Is he really strict about it? Like, I'll kill you if you're there, too. I was never really clear. Was he surgical? I'm going to kill this one person and then I'm out. I was never really clear on how these people related to said naughty list at all, because they're all supposed to be like 20, 22. And you're like, dude, he was in jail long enough that there's no way that they would have been on his list in the first place. Well, you know, some people are dead. They got to be replaced. You got to just keep adding to the list. The naughty list never stops growing. So there's a lot of him. It's just, you know, after that, it's your traditional slasher. He's he's going around. Uh, there's an alcoholic ex-cop who who is supposed to, you know is going to come in at some point to be a uh, to help out, but not till the very end. Uh, and they kind of follow the cop story that goes nowhere. And you're just like, well, you just get back to the killing young people thing already. This nobody gives a shit about the fucking the, like the dumbass cops yeah. in this movie who whose plot is just kind of simmering. Uh, there's a couple good gore shots. Uh, there's some stuff towards the end I kind of liked, but overall, this doesn't... I mean, I get that it's supposed to be more of a tribute to the old slashers, but I just found it really dull. Is there nudity in this? Uh, I want to say briefly. It's, okay. It doesn't go overboard. Because it. so many of these films get made because they're like, all right, we got a, a Halloween or a Santa costume. We've got some chicks who'll take off their tops, and we have five gallons of blood. That's all the reason we need to make a movie. But it sounds like they didn't even live up to that low potential. I, I would say that is so. Oh, now, now, that being bad. said, the other film from Artsploitation is maybe the favorite thing I've ever received from them, uh, which is this crazy freaking movie called Snowflake. Oh, I thought we were going to put this towards the end. All right, let's talk about this uh, one. Yeah, this... Uh, 
has p- played a series of different fantastic fest-ish type film festivals where I, I sadly had not seen it before now or even had it on my radar, but it's p- picked up lots of like a, a awards at said festivals along the way. So I was kind of like when I went reading about it, I was like, oh, well, this sounds interesting. And sure enough, it's I, I wrote about this briefly on my Facebook. I was like, it's like very young Terry Gilliam and very young Quentin Tarantino got together and decided to try and do a horror action version of, uh, was it six, six characters in search of an author? Yeah. yeah. Uh, you should understand, like, Chris had put this into my hand and said, this is great. He didn't tell me anything about it. He just said, I think you'll like it. So I pop it in. And so far, I'm like, okay, I'm getting the Tarantino vibe. It's all in German, but it's, you know, some low-life criminals, you know, they're having a banal conversation about Donner, some kind of, you know, Middle Eastern treat they've purchased in a German uh, restaurant. We get big, flashy chapter titles. Okay, we get another chapter title. You know, it's like a bodyguard and a young woman, and she's telling him, I need you to hire someone to kill the men who murdered my parents. I'm like, all right, so far, so good. It's looking fine. This is nothing I've never seen before. And then we end up back with the two lowlifes we saw at the, f- the top of the film, sitting in a car that they have stolen, and a guy rummages around in the back seat and pulls out a screenplay. And he starts reading it. And his brother says something, and it's also in the screenplay. And then they realize everything that they're saying corresponds to what is in the screenplay, including the scene from the night before. And they realize, holy shit, we're characters in a movie. Right. And so they're like, what do we do now? Well, we got to find the guy who owns this car, who turns out to be just this dentist. A dentist who writes for a hobby. normal guy who has no idea that this, is ha- that this was happening. He's not like casting magic spells. It's like, it's ultimately not important why no. it's happening. But they're kind of like, they're, they're stuck. They're like, well, what do we do? We don't like the idea of not having free will or predestination, which seems like what's happening here. What happens if we kill him? Now, if we kill him, what if that means we die? And it like gets into lots of interesting philosophical questions while never getting dragged down in the right. mud with those questions. It never stops for, for long enough while musing to stop having fun. Yeah. I think it's much more interested, especially towards the end where it has some pointed commentary. I, I think it's much more interested in talking about like the state of German politics, you know, of, of racism, of immigration, uh, the rise of, you know, the, of the alt-right and neo-Nazis. Yeah, and yes, neo-Nazis play into this as well as a whole bunch of crazed serial killers uh, or hitmen who are paid to by the uh, the young lady to go kill uh, uh, her uh, parents' murderers. Not to mention there's also a guy who literally thinks he is God. Yeah, oh, yeah. And there is a electrical-powered superhero. Oh, yes. We should yeah. not. Admit, and that's the thing. At some point, it's be clear that it's like you are trying to be five or six different movies and be meta as fuck. And none of this should work. More, than, more often than not, if you present something like this to me, I'm going to go, please stop sucking your own dick. Or if you do... Please don't expect me to watch you do it. Right. And yet, this film, time and time again, makes it work. Well, it is fun. Like I said, it never gets mired down in the dreck of overthinking it yeah. about itself, about what its subtext is. At some point, is just the text, but they're just having so much fun with it. Right. It never stops being very, like, like uh, vibrantly shot and, like, moving very quickly with the camera work. It's... Out and out, laugh out loud, funny at points with yeah. dialogue. These two characters who are the like the initial two two, two uh, killer guys yeah. are just a 
great, funny comedy team together. They I mean, were, yeah. And the fact that they're offended that they're the bad guys in the script. They're like, wait a minute. It's like, no, guys. This is story isn't about you. You're the bad guys. Like, how could that be? It's definitely a film that at the same time while you're watching, you're like, I know this is about a lot more than what it's about on the surface, but I don't even care. I mean, it'd be great to read a whole breakdown on what everybody w- right. stood for, what their what they were metaphors were, but it doesn't matter. It's just really fun. <laughs> it, it is. I mean, it, it is. It's as lighthearted a film as you could expect from some pretty heavy subject matter and a pretty trippy theme, and yet. They just always keep the the emphasis on entertainment. I imagine if you want to read something deeper into it, and I think towards the final act, they definitely are trying to make you think about certain things, especially about the cycle of violence, the nature of revenge, you know, the rise of the of the neo Nazis and like violence against immigrant communities. And this sort of never-ending cycle of violence, because we realize the two sort of sets of characters is the young woman and her hitman friend, or her bodyguard friend. Uh, she's the one whose parents died. And you have the two other guys, and then you also have this third guy who's this sort of a... Uh, He's again, he's a typical sort of Marvel hero. He's like, he's got electrical powers. He doesn't believe in killing if he doesn't have to. He doesn't believe in revenge. And I'm like, okay, you're making a statement about the cycle of revenge and okay, and how you can keep scripting and it always ends up the same. I get that. But you're right. If you just go and go with the flow on this, I think you're going to enjoy it. You can think about the uh, ramifications later. Yeah, it's you know, think about all that shit if you watch it a second time. The first time, right? First just time, just there, just yeah. let it wash over you and enjoy how kind of brilliantly insane this movie is. Uh, I think there are some bonus features on it, but I couldn't find a list online. Do you yeah, see the, the, on the, the main there? bonus feature is like a feature length. It's basically just B roll. It's. Uh, it, it's the bonus feature is uh, behind the scenes. Uh, it's 58 minutes. It's basically an hour of B-roll footage, behind the scenes stuff. And the thing that you take away, because apparently this took a long time for them to make because it was done low budget uh, in very tight, cramped conditions. And they just had to shoot little bits of it at a time. But you do get the sense that as hard as it was to make, uh, everybody on the project had a great time and believed in it. And And that's... One of the nice things you don't always see in some of these behind-the-scenes things, it's everybody kind of just, you know, kissing one another's ass and talking about how great everything was or how what a nightmare it was. And here it just seems like people who really cared about this project and had a lot of fun making it. And some of that fun translates to the screen. Well, our next film is going way back oh, yeah. with a old Samuel Fuller Western that Criterion is putting out on Blu-ray called 40 Guns. Now, this was not on my radar whatsoever. Certainly Samuel Fuller was, however, right. who is a director. I'm actually kind of late into like finding out about him after seeing like uh, the Big Red One, which is great. Oh, yeah. and Shock Corridor, which is fucking essential yeah. watching. Or The Naked Kiss. I mean, this guy made a lot of great, really gritty, very... Very atypically plotted films from yeah. our genre. And I think 40 Guns is no exception. It makes a lot of turns away from things you expect to see from Westerns at this point in time uh, to great surprise. Uh, absolutely. Now, Fuller has always had that ability to kind of shock people. And he's one of those guys who just kind of developed a reputation amongst filmmakers as this very independent voice who somehow managed to make some very atypical films within the Hollywood system. And maybe because they were just small or shot quickly, he could get away with that. Uh, this particular film, it takes a little while to figure out what's going on at the beginning. But uh, you have... Uh, Three brothers, uh, the Bonnell brothers, they're basically, uh, Griff, the oldest, he's kind of a, 
bounty hunter, gunslinger. Yeah. He's got his two brothers who are, you know, the younger brother. They're trying to get him to go into farming. They pull up into this uh, well, tombstone. To be said, and, it's very clear early on that this guy has a rep. Yeah. Like, like people like see him coming and they're like, uh, we give up. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and so, of course, he moves it. He's going into tombstone. Uh, you think it's going to be like a Wyatt Earp story, but it's not. But he's kind of in that vein of like, he's not a marshal. He's not a lawman, but he clearly is skilled enough to do it. He's, he's kind of, they give the impression he's kind of between worlds. Because before yes. he was kind of like the most ruthless of bounty hunters. And now he's kind of, I don't want to do that anymore, yeah. but I don't really know what I want to do. And he finds himself due to the events of this film, kind of being drawn towards yeah. being a lawman. He, he's like a lot of the characters in a lot of great Westerns where they are. And again, this is a bit of a, a kind of a conceit of a lot of filmmakers that you have that character who realizes that his time is over, that the West, uh, you know, the American expansion has changed. Civilization has come out to the West now. And men like him don't really have a place in society. You see that in every movie from this other, whether it's Shane or the Searchers. It's the plot of Red Dead Redemption, too. Or (laughs) Unforgiven. There's a sense of, you know, we needed men like me once upon a time, but we're in a new world. And the thing that makes this film seem different, everything I've described sounds like any other Western you could see from this era. But because it's Sam Fuller, he's going to throw a wrench uh, in in the works here. And that is because the gang that runs this town, the 40 guns, are all run by a woman. Uh, the, uh, the beautiful and, uh, famous Barbara Stanwyck, who is this kind of proto-feminist character. We realize that she, you know, she's had a really tough life, but she's smart and she's ma- managed to make these 40 hired guns, one of whom is her hot-headed younger brother, uh, keep this town in check. You know, she basically runs everything. She owns everybody from the lawyers to the town sheriff. And they're intensely loyal to her. Yeah. But even so, they're like every once in a while, mainly because of her hot-headed younger brother who's nothing but but a total shit little shithead. Yes. Like, get into trouble and do stuff they're not supposed to do in the town, which is when Griff and his brothers show up in the town and they basically counter this deal. And it's interesting because you really expect that she's going to be this total villain of a character. And that's not what this movie what no, has going on at all. It's, not. it's it's she has always kind of let them do what they need to do to some extent, but like and everyone's been kind of too afraid to give her shit, but at the same time she's not directing anyone to do anything directly wrong per se. And when Griff Bunnell shows up, who is this force of nature of a of a alpha male, yeah. but yet relatively soft spoken, all things considered, yeah. she has this instant respect for the guy yeah. and is is actually like, okay, you're right, this won't do, but we've got to find. I can't. I'm not going to let my little brother go to jail. Right. You know, I've always protected him. She's very almost more of a mother than than a than a sister to him, and it's kind of this weird connection. I mean, it's ultimately about Griff and and Jessica Drummond. Uh, and their strange evolving relationship yeah. uh, as the film goes on. I mean, part of it does, that does ultimately kind of feel a little bit flat to me, but I also realize the time of when this film was made, it does ultimately feel like here's a woman in command and control and she's willing to give it all up for the, for a good man. Uh, like there's a song because of course, Westerns from this period always had a theme that's, song. That's an awkward moment though. Yeah. In the film early on when you're like, you're hearing a song with words first off, which right off the bat, you're like, oh, the singer, like, okay, I kind of hate it when they 
they do this in westerns. But and then the camera pans down, and you and realize a, uh, it's a character who's actually walking along, and he doesn't even have a guitar. He's just singing it. It's not till three hundred yards later that he shows up where the guy with the guitar. Yeah. But I mean, it's like, it's like about a woman with a whip, you know, but it's just a woman after all. I mean, and that's ultimately where this movie goes. Uh, apart from that weird kind of like proto-feminist leanings, the thing that distinguishes this film, and it's only 80 minutes long, and yet it is stuffed with incident, and, and you see what a filmmaker like Sam Fuller can do. Uh, this movie couldn't have cost a whole lot to make. Probably done on the back lot, on the cheap, but like there's a an out of nowhere uh tornado sequence the effects of which are pretty good i caught myself going wow i wonder how they fucking shot yeah, this that it looks really good and then you just have all these bizarre little moments like somebody's like staring at the woman he loves through like a rifled barrel or you know this slow pan when we see you know jessica sitting at the table with her, all of her bed. And it's literally like, it feels like it's never going to end. It's like, there are literally 40 dudes sitting at this table. Uh, it's just strange shots and really interesting ways that he builds the tension in some of these scenes that just add an extra special something to this movie that in anybody else's hands could have been kind of a throwaway. Sure. But Sam Fuller actually just makes it visually worthwhile. He really does. And he gets some strong performances out of a lot of actors that aren't as, that definitely didn't hold the test of time as well. Mm -hmm. uh, but at their time were kind of known like Barry Sullivan playing Griffinell yeah. was known at the time, but he's kind of disappeared yeah. today as, as far as our modern memory goes. Yeah. Obviously everyone still remembers the great Barbara Stanwyck. Uh, Dean now, Jagger. This is a uh, criterion. So there's a 30 page illustrated booklet oh, about yeah. the film. There is Fuller Women, a brand new video interview with Sam Fuller's widow, Krista Langfuller, and his daughter, Samantha Fuller, who talk about this period, uh, uh, the performance of Barbara Stanwyck, uh, his relationship with Daryl uh, F. Zanuck, studio head, uh, his love for Western films, uh, and, and about the sort of characters you would see appear regularly in his films. There's Woman with a Woman with a Whip, which is a brand new video interview with Imogen Sarah Smith, author of Lonely Places, Film Noir Beyond the City, uh, which who deconstructs the film. There's A Fuller Life, directed and produced by Sam Samantha Fuller, his daughter. It's a documentary uh, that that goes that basically is a whole look at his full career with lots of uh, like well-known actors yeah. appearing in it. Bill There's, Duke, Mark Hamill, guys who worked with him. Yeah, uh, I mean uh, even uh, uh, James Franco, who yeah. I don't think did. <laughs> no, I'm pretty sure he did it. Although I think they have Vim Vendors on there. In fact, that's how I learned of Samuel Fuller because Vim Vendors in the 80s and early 90s was casting these directors he loved, like Samuel Fuller and Nicholas Ray, to appear in his films. And, you know, was kind of kind of just telling everybody who would listen, like, you got to go back and check these guys' work out because they're really good. Well, what they did was for this, and I think it's a neat idea, they took his memoirs, uh, A Third Face, and they had, the way they organized, they take selected sequences and the actors that are well-known read those yeah. those passages from the book. There's also a commentary. It's not a true commentary, but it's actually a feature-length interview with Sam Fuller. Uh, that's just about his entire career that plays over the movie. If you want to watch that too. Uh, yeah, there's a archival Q and a with Sam Fuller at the national film uh, theater in London in 1969 and a stills gallery. So this is a real solid criterion release of a, a Western film that may not have been on your radar whatsoever, but I know you probably should be. Yeah. And we're going to end with another Western, albeit a more modern take on the, the Southern Gothic noir Western. It's very Southern Gothic noir. And that film is called Gal 
Galveston. I was actually, it's funny when we were, I really, really liked this film and I was, I'd heard so many things from festivals about how many people talking about how much they loved it. And I was super shocked when uh, there's a different group every year for the Austin Film Critics Association who has to watch all the films made in Texas and mm-hmm. then break it down to five in order and then present that and those nominees for the rest of us to watch. And I was shocked that this was not on it. And then I come to find out not a frame of this fucking oh, thing no. was shot in Texas. No, <laughs> I, I mean, I didn't doubt that. I mean, it, it didn't feel like Texas to me, but I couldn't really point it out. I mean, it could have been shot anywhere. Uh, but it doesn't really matter because it's not really about Texas. Uh, it's, it's not even barely about Galveston. Galveston just becomes sort of representative of like a place of refuge. I found it odd that this isn't one of my favorite movies of the year. One of my favorite movies of the year was actually a little film called Never Going Back, which so oddly good. enough is also about two girls who are in a bad situation who just need to get to Galveston. If they can just get to Galveston, everything. And we, Which is weird. I've never heard of anyone yeah. needing to get to Galveston. Right. When we reviewed it, we laughed hysterically. It's like, Galveston, who the fuck wants to go to Galveston? <laughs> but this is the same kind of scenario where uh, – uh, Ben Foster uh, is a hitman, a, uh, a mob enforcer working for the great uh, Joe uh, Don Baker, who I haven't seen in – not Joe Don Baker. Not Joe I'm Don sorry. Baker. You know, uh, the other guy who became Joe Don Baker, uh, Bo Bridges. Bo Bridges? Really? You think he became Joe Don Baker? <laughs> like when, you, when Joe Don Baker wasn't available, you get Bo Bridges. I need a Bridges, but I need the fat one. Bring in Bo. So this is, this is like – you know, this is southern mob. Yeah. This is not like – They're Louisiana. Like, yeah. Yeah, which is where I think the movie was actually shot. Yeah, it was because of the, it's super cheap to shoot in Louisiana. Yeah, a lot of films set in Texas are actually filmed in Louisiana yeah. for that reason, which everyone is still mad at Rick Perry about because that's on him. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> but now he only controls the nuclear arsenal, so I mean, you yeah, know, hey, he's made up wrong. for it. Anyway, uh, keep going. Anyway, uh, Roy, played by Ben Foster, is a hitman and a mob enforcer who, as is often the case in these kinds of movies, has a horrible, tragic thing happen to him. Namely, he's been vaguely diagnosed with some kind of cancer. Uh, He is dying and coughing up his lungs. Uh, Bo Bridges sends him out to do a job and he says, no guns. I want this clean. And of course, once he gets there, he realizes he's been set up and he manages to escape, but also with him grabs a young girl uh, played by Elle Fanning. They hit the road and they go to Galveston or at least it becomes a road picture for a while. For a while, they're stuck in a hotel. Uh, and along the way, they stop at her old house in Orange, Texas. And I'm like, that ain't Orange, Texas. I knew that was an Orange, Texas. But they go to Orange uh, to pick up uh, her little sister. They hit on the road. And, they're, and, of course, he has some things that Bo Bridges wants and is desperately trying to get back from him. Uh, yeah, this, this is a movie that the mystery of it isn't really that important. Uh, this is really a character piece about a gruff guy who's looking at, you know, the end of his life and trying to take care of this young girl and her little sister, uh, who also have a whole host of problems too. And it really is about that relationship between Ben Foster and Ellie Fanning. I, I think Ben Foster is quickly turning into one of the best actors of his generation and Ellie Fanning is almost... I mean, she's shockingly good for her age. I, yeah. I, I, I've 
argued before, and I've heard other people say as well, she may be, for her age group, the best actress working right now. Yeah. Like, really great. I feel bad for Dakota now. It's like, sorry, we li- we like you too, Dakota, but I'm sorry, your sister Ellie. She's, mm-hmm. come on, she's a force of nature. And she is terrific in this movie. Uh, she is so broken thoroughly, and so is he. And somewhere mm-hmm. in the middle, they find a weird sort of not sexual connection yeah. to each other. Um it's fascinating to watch this play out. It's really well shot by, I believe, her film debut actress Melanie Laurent. Yeah, uh, uh, directs this thing. Is out a French actress, very well known French actress, right? decides to come to Louisiana to shoot a Southern Gothic noir. Wait, but what else has Melanie Durant, Laurent directed? Because the names, well, like I said, I'm not sure. Familiar? I'm not sure she did direct anything. Oh, she's okay. known as an actress. She's, I mean, probably first best known in America for uh, Inglorious Bastards. Where she was nominated. Oh yeah, uh, for, she was the, uh, the her performance yeah. in that. But she's been in a lot of films since then. Uh, so as far as I know, this is her debut. I'm not entirely sure. But anyway, interesting transition for her. Yeah, yeah. It's not the type of film you would expect, but I think this is a very thoughtful film. It's also deeply upsetting. Like, oh yeah, now it goes to some dark places. There's the there's a point at the end of this film that I was I just felt kind of broken by the fucking thing. But like towards the end, but then there's this wonderful epilogue that I just, I just felt like entranced by. There's this whole sort of like this many years later that I thought was like, which is uh, one character with a, with a new ish character. Yeah. uh, You know, uh, and their conversation that I just found like one of the best character on character performance pieces I've seen this year with with an ending that feels both ambiguous and arbitrary, but also uh, appropriate for this. This this is a grim film. Make no mistake. Oh yeah. I mean, this is not a good time. Uh, any film called Galveston that ends with a hurricane, it ain't going to be happy. Yeah. Uh, which I was surprised by that framing device. Cause up until that point, I was like, really, what is the point of Galveston to this movie? And I'm like, Oh, okay. I see why they put that in there and why it's important. Once every few years, it gets destroyed again. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but perhaps from destruction, new things will arise. I, I always, I'm reading a book right now called Isaac storm, which is about the great, you know, turn of the century storm in Galveston that turned it from what was considered at that point to be the third biggest uh, city in America after Chicago and New York. Is that the Joe Lansdale one? No. Oh, uh, Joe Lansdale wrote another book that was set during this This great This is not a hurricane. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, the, he does a fictional book where the, it sets place, I believe, during that same hurricane. He does. Uh, but this is uh, uh, written by Eric Larson, who's oh, uh, known for Devil, Devil in White, White City. City. Yeah. One of my favorite writers. Anyway, uh, <laughs> it's just so weird to think that Galveston, which is, I'm sorry, just a shithole yeah. now, was one of the biggest, most anticipated to be center of America cities there was. And that storm so utterly and completely Set flattened that city yeah. that it made it, that was never going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> it, it stopped their progress in their tracks. But, uh, you know, this is definitely worth checking out. It, it was not the uh, the most fun film in this stack. And I don't even know if it's the best film in this stack. But as far as, like, acting, directing goes, I mean, this is really well done. I, I'm, I'm surprised that it came from Melanie Laurent. Uh, 
who knows? Uh, maybe she's going to get some more stuff because this seems right up her alley. She, and, I mean, she really nails this genre. She really does. And she, this got a lot of positive notice uh, this year. It was actually written by – the original book was written by Nick Pizzolatto. Oh, that's right. From uh, – uh, uh, True detective. detective. And it feels like a true detective film. It does. Uh, uh, yeah, this, I will definitely see another film from her. I remember how strongly after South by everybody was raving about this. Did this even get a theatrical release? Br- a brief one. Okay. And I didn't remember limited. it. But you know, what are you going to do? Yeah. You know, you know. Uh, there's a lot of, a lot of films vying for that uh, in the indie field for that precious can we go to at least that between limited and wide release. And yeah. very few of them actually get there. But I'll tell you, despite the fact we talked about several films, I really liked this one. And although I would argue that four Guns is probably the best made of all of these. I'm actually going to give it to Snowflake for the pick of the week because honestly, this is a movie you guys have promised you have never seen anything like this. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say Snowflake is the best film here, but if you're just looking for something you've never seen, I mean, hell, we haven't even explained what the title Snowflake is, but you'll find out if you watch. Yeah, the movie. I'd rather you find out on your. Yeah, own. it is definitely worth watching. Uh, all I'll ever say is if you realize that you are a character in a screenplay, you should never skip ahead because a guy in a pig mask will knock you over. Very true. That happened to me. Believe it.